Welcome to Liberty Revealed, the only show where you will learn about all things liberty. Your host for the show is a registered libertarian who's been involved in politics for more than 25 years. He has a passion for teaching others about the concept of personal liberty. Please welcome your host, Mike Mahoney. I am a big believer in personal liberty. To me, my rights end where your rights begin. What this means is law should ensure that your freedom to live your life as you choose does not impact everyone else's freedom to live their lives as they choose. This is personal liberty. If you want to learn more about personal liberty and get more from this show, sign up to receive my 10-page guide on personal liberty entitled Liberty Revealed. You need to fill out a simple form located at yogispodcastnetwork.com forward slash liberty revealed. That's Y-O-G-I-S podcastnetwork.com forward slash Liberty Revealed. Once you read through that ebook, you are guaranteed to be in a position to apply the philosophy of personal liberty. Welcome back to another episode of Liberty Revealed, the show dedicated to revealing personal liberty to all who listen. I'm your host, Mike Mahoney, and today... I want to talk to you about censorship. What exactly is censorship? Defining this term properly will help you decide if it is ever a good thing. Censorship is the coercive silencing of dissenting views by political authorities, generally in order to protect an official orthodoxy or to prevent the spread of ideas not authorized by the powers that be. As Alberto Minguel writes in A History of Reading, censorship, quote, is the corollary of all power and the history of reading is lit by a seemingly endless line of censors' bonfires, end quote. It should be noted that censorship has been and continues to be a common feature of oppressive regimes. John Milton, whose Aero Pagitica, written in protest of the censorship of his writings on divorce, remains the most eloquent defense of the free press written in English, provided a history of censorship from 411 B.C. when the works of Protagoras were burned in Athens in the grounds that they taught agnosticism. In the Republic, Plato advocates censorship of poetry and music that failed to promote the state's interests. This tradition has continued in modern times. Beginning in 1933, Josef Goebbels oversaw mass book burnings, which became a trademark of the Nazi regime. In the Soviet Union, an agency called Glavlet oversaw all printed publications, including even food labels, to prevent the dissemination of unacceptable material. Today, officials in China, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and other countries have implemented censorship of books, periodicals, television, radio, and the internet to ensure that political dissent, religious heterodoxy, or sexually provocative material are not disseminated to the general public. The introduction of the printing press and the Protestant injunction for believers to read the Bible for themselves made censorship an increasingly important subject of debate in Reformation Europe. In 1559, the Catholic Church issued the first Index Liborum Prohibitorum, which lists books forbidden as dangerous to the faith. The Index was not eliminated until 1966. Protestant nations were no less censorious. Henry VIII ordered the burning of Reformation books prior to his own break with Rome, including English translations of the New Testament, and established the licensing requirement for publishing 
that Milton would protest a century later in Aero Pagatia, Pagotica. In the ensuing decades, the English common law gradually developed a principle of free expression that barred the government from engaging in, quote, prior restraint, end quote, i.e. the forcible prevention of publication. But no rule protected authors from punishment after publication. Thus, although William Blackstone explained in his commentaries that the prohibition on prior restraints was of the essence to English liberty, there was no, quote, freedom from censure for criminal matter when published, end quote. Dissidents could print their views, but the threat of prosecution for, quote, seditious libel, end quote, and other political crimes helped temper criticism of the government. In America, however, the famous 1735 acquittal of John Peter Zenger largely eliminated seditious libel as a threat to colonial printers. Prosecutions for the publication of indecent material did continue, however. First book to be banned in the United States was John Cleland's pornographic novel Fanny Hill or Memoirs of a Woman of Pleasure, which was prohibited in Boston in 1821 and when republished in 1964 was again banned leading to an important Supreme Court decision defining obscenity. Because the common law defined freedom of the press by the absence of prior restraints, the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which protects the freedoms of press and speech, has been interpreted as an almost absolute prohibition on, our prior, restra on prior restraints. Some have argued that the First Amendment goes no further, whereas others contend that it goes further than common law and prohibits certain forms of post-publication punishment or other government actions intended to limit the dissemination of information. American courts have identified three broad categories of censorship other than prior restraint. One, the punishment of those who produce material, such as obscenity or extraordinarily intimidating threats, which is determined not to qualify as, quote, speech, end quote, or, quote, press, end quote, as the terms were understood by the authors of the First Amendment. Two, the use of libel and slander to publish those who utter falsehoods or unflattering comments, and three, the removal of books from public libraries. It is widely conceded that certain material is so obscene that it contains no ideas or expression worthy of constitutional protection. However, defining the word obscene has proven extremely difficult for courts because too broad a definition might well threaten the dissemination of provocative but serious material. In 1973, the Supreme Court defined obscenity as material that, taken as a whole, appeals to the prurient interest in sex, that portrays sex in a patently offensive way, and that lacks serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. This definition has proved difficult to apply, and in recent decades, governments in the United States have largely given up the efforts to ban pornography. Worse, it can be dangerous to declare that certain forms of expression are not protected forms of speech. Prohibitions of hate speech or of expressive actions thought to be extraordinarily offensive, such as flag burning, are similar in that they can often be justified on the grounds that such forms of expression communicate sentiments that are unworthy of legal protection. The dangers of such a rationale are evident in the area of sexual harassment laws, which in recent years have been expanded so as to intimidate some speakers or to prohibit some forms of expression that, whatever their merit, are clearly communicative and not obscene or threatening. In addition, this effort to define certain categories of expression as outside constitutional protections has spawned legal theories that seek to define certain categories of speech 
as deserving lesser constitutional protection. The regime of diminished protection prevails in the realm of commercial speech, defined to be speech that proposes a commercial transaction. Although the Constitution provides no warrant for such discrimination, the Supreme Court has found that commercial expression can be extensively regulated because it is not considered part of the political or cultural dialogue thought essential to democratic decision-making. Likewise, campaign finance regulations, although often restricting the rights of individuals to express their political preferences, are frequently defended on the grounds that limiting the expressive opportunities of wealthy groups fosters broader democratic debate. Libel and slander laws have regularly been abused to stifle criticism of political authorities, but in the United States, these efforts were severely curtailed by the 1964 Supreme Court decision, New York Times v. Sullivan, which held that public figures, such as government officials or those who choose to partake in matters of public concern, can only rarely prevail in libel cases. Even publication of obviously false and obscene material about a public figure has been held protected by the First Amendment, as when pornographer Larry Flint successfully defended his right to publish a counterfeit interview, suggesting that Minister Jerry Falwell had lost his virginity to his mother in an outhouse. Although public figures can virtually never succeed when suing media for such libel in the United States, European countries, particularly England, do not prohibit such suits. As a result, criticism of political figures in England is still often hampered. Worse, because publications produced in the United States are easily available in England, public figures who have been criticized have brought suit against American writers in English courts and recovered, although these suits would be constitutionally barred under American law. This libel tourism has become a matter of increasing concern in the age of the Internet. One common source of debate over freedom of expression in the United States involves the removal of controversial books from public libraries and libraries in public schools. Although not strictly a form of censorship because the publications remain legal and available elsewhere, such attempts to prevent reading are common and are monitored by the American Library Association's Office of Intellectual Freedom. The U.S. Supreme Court has never ruled that such removals are prohibited by the First Amendment, but in Board of Education v. PICO, a plurality of justices held that while school boards have broad discretion to choose what books are appropriate for curriculum or classroom use, and to choose what books may be placed in a library, they may not remove books that are already in the library on the basis of the ideas contained in those books or in an attempt to prescribe orthodox opinions. To me, it would appear that the vast majority of censorship is bad. I feel like going down the path of allowing censorship is an extremely slippery slope that leads to some very dangerous situations. If you allow censorship of things you define as bad, what stops others from defining as bad things you see as good? How do we determine what does and does not get censored? Perhaps we should use similar standards to our libel and slander laws. Many look towards protecting children as a good reason to censor things. Marjorie Hines does not argue that unfettered access to all forms of expression would benefit children. Even as some studies have claimed that violent images may help create violent children, Hines cautions against simplistic conclusions. Quote, when you look at it, definitions of violent entertainment are all over the lot, end quote, she said. Quote, there's very little attempt to put violence in context, so it would be impossible to frame any kind of censorship legislation that would pinpoint what harm is, end quote. Rather than intellectual protectionism, Hines advocates media literacy programs and sexuality education to help children cope with their surroundings. She also questions the efficacy of forbidden speech zones, which may attract children to the very material that adults would deny them. Better, she said, to teach children to make the best choices 
than to pretend those choices don't exist. Kids are going to make some choices about culture, and those choices can be influenced by their interactions with parents and their teachers, said Hines. It's sort of similar to food. I think when your kid is a baby, you can feed them good, healthy baby food. Once they get into nursery school, they're going to start learning about the other temptations, so the most parents can do is to try to continue to make some rules and try to explain why they're the right rules. Hines concludes that concerns about violence, language, and sex have more to do so with socializing youth than with the objective proof of psychological harm. Censorship, on behalf of children she believes, is really done for the adults who demand it. I have to agree with Hines. We don't censor to protect children. We do it because adults demand it. I say we should handle this very carefully. We should consider that the vast majority of censorship is simply wrong and should not be allowed. So tell me your thoughts on this by leaving a voicemail on the Yogi's Podcast Network headline hotline at 657-529-2218. That's it for this episode of Liberty Revealed. If you like what you've heard, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. If you'd like to learn more about personal liberty, grab your free copy of my book, Liberty Revealed, by heading over to yogispodcastnetwork.com forward slash Liberty Revealed. Until next time, stay free. Thanks for listening to Liberty Revealed, the show where you learn about all things liberty. Please visit the show's website at yogispodcastnetwork.com backslash LR, where you can reach out to Mike directly with your questions and comments. Again, that is yogispodcastnetwork.com backslash LR.